This is Thinking Like a Lawyer. It sure is. Yeah, the uh, <laughs> weekly podcast that we put on here at Above the Law. I'm Joe Patrice. Hi, Joe Patrice. Hi, that's Catherine Rubino. Also of Above the Law. Right, yeah, I think at this point that's kind of assumed. Chris Williams is here too, he's just not said anything yet. You know, manners. Just kidding. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> right? <laughs> Thank you. I'm fully on Catherine's side. I did that somebody, just for the Somebody had to say it. <laughs> yeah, I'm glad it wasn't you, though. Yeah. <laughs> so we're uh, we're gonna have a little bit of small talk here small before we talk. get into the real. Okay, before we get into the real subject matter of oh the week, uh, which was a busy week. What all are people up to uh, of interest to them? I went swimming this weekend. It was actually nice. The rain. There was still rain, but it didn't dominate the weekend the way I feel like it has tended to in the Northeast. So that was exciting for me. I actually got to use my pool. That was good times. I was going to say that uh, the exciting thing was last week we had, uh, from a business perspective, we had a little quasi-editorial retreat where we all got together Mm. for the day. So we were all in one room, which... Increasingly you don't understand doesn't. the point of small talk. It's not to talk about work. It's to talk about personal. <laughs> I'm not talking about legal stories. I'm talking about our work. lives. See, yeah, I, I will say, I will say, work again, is again, Catherine, the, I'm glad somebody else said it. <laughs> work is distinct from the is absolutely distinct from the subject matter of this show. This show is not a behind the scenes look at how we do our jobs. It's about the law. And okay, so. So I'm just waiting for the small talk section where somebody's like, yeah, you know, on the weekend, I just had lunch with Clarence Thomas. Like, no, it's still work really. (laughs) And again, like, I don't have enough money for that. Um, You have at least 13 bucks. The price is going down. Is it? Either way. But yeah, so uh, it was nice. We all were able to get together with something increasingly less happening in the uh, post-pandemic world. So uh, it's the first time, actually. Yeah, for the first time, I think all of us. Yeah. 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 yeah, and it's been two years. I've been up here for two years already. Yeah, probably close. Yeah, first to time it. in two years. Twenty twenty three. Yeah. So, well, wild. Yeah. So, how about you, Chris? Oh well, um, I went to Jamaica for the first time. It wasn't the best occasion. It was for a, it was for a funeral. There was a death I'm in the so family. Sorry. But all places considering, it's a good place to go. You know, <laughs> um, the views were beautiful. The water was the color I didn't know water could be. Yeah. Um, you could barely tell about the, you know, pollution because of globalization or whatever. Um, <laughs> I had some jerk chicken in Jamaica for the first time. I realized that I've been lied to. Every other jerk I've had <laughs> has been a pale imitation. It was it was beautiful. Expensive as hell. Uh, very expensive. Um, just like a just a couple like there for like maybe like really three days. Spent like three hundred bucks just going to the fro to and fro and getting food. But yeah. Well, that's part of the problem with doing it at the last minute, too. Like, those are the sorts of places where if you've bought your tickets long in advance, it's a little bit easier. I'm not talking about the flight. I'm oh, talking okay. about the cost yeah. of food. I'm talking about the cost of travel. You know, the things that, you know, I was, like I said, in those three days, I was talking about, you know, it's okay. But yeah, it was, the flight was expensive, but it was, it was, we had a little bit of time to plan out. It wasn't a last minute flight, like mm. super last minute, but the, the jerk cost some money. Yeah. <laughs> well, at least it was worth it. Oh, Yeah. Yeah. It's worse when you, you know, mm-hmm. spend the money and it's mediocre food. Also got repeatedly re- re- mistaken for Rastafarian, which was well, interesting for those who um, 
who don't li- who don't know listen to the podcast. I'm black. No, no, I have dreads. <laughs> I have dreads. <laughs> That's the reason. And uh, a couple people were like, you know, Ross, respect. I'm like, oh, okay, this, this is just kind people. No, I was like, I'm not nearly as religious as you think I am. But no, that was that was a fun experience. Well, it seems like jerk is going to come up a lot during this podcast because oh. uh, we're going to oh. a different kind of uh, jerks will come up. Uh, so let's conclude our small talk and go on to a conversation of the big, a big story of last week, a pair of big stories, uh, two high traffic stories hit out above the law, both involved the same person. And Catherine, you were, uh, you were on our Eileen Cannon beat. I was, I was, she's, you know, listen, the spotlight has turned pretty sharply on her, right? It, it started when she inserted herself into the um, Mar-a-Lago search warrant case. And even though she got bench slapped pretty severely by the 11th Circuit, she's also the judge that is handling the document indictment that Donald Trump is facing. So there's there's a lot there's a lot to think. There's a lot of reasons to think that uh, she is going to continue to uh, be in the spotlight. And a bunch of you know intrepid reporters have found out other mistakes that she's made. Oops. It's not just this you know Eleventh Circuit bench slap that's kind of out there hanging out there. And they're all problematically, I think, for <laughs> what's about to happen, all in criminal cases. Um, and yeah, <laughs> like, oh, if only. All right. So what'd she do? Well, in one of the cases, she in the jury instruction form, she didn't write. She didn't ask the jury whether or not the defendant was guilty or not guilty. Uh, there are a series of. That yes seems like a pretty <laughs> fundamental Isn't that kind of like a basic thing. Yeah. 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 That is the problem. There is a series of yes or no questions. Did the defendant do this act, which is, you know, part of the predicate, whatever, but never fundamentally asked, is this person guilty or are they not guilty? Uh, the lawyer in the case is appealing and says, you know, I've never seen such a easy technical error kind of mm. thing. Uh, and it was it was a contested. The jury form was conte- contested and. She went ahead with her version of the uh, verdict form, form, despite the fact, you know, professors who were opining on like, I've never seen something quite like this, <laughs> <laughs> where we don't actually ask whether or not the defendant is guilty or not guilty. So, you know, that, it's not great. That's no. not great. She's also neglected to swear in a prospective jury pool. You know, not great. Uh, <laughs> she also, in an, a case closed the courtroom to the family and general public. And it's now under appeal before violating uh, the defendant's constitutional Sixth Amendment rights to a public trial. Right. You know, these are the types of things you wouldn't expect from a person with her vast, you know, jury, <laughs> jury experience, which is why she was recruited, right? Because she's been doing this for <laughs> a very long time. So, so yeah, I mean, look, we're, we're talking about judges who don't have a lot of experience, which is what happened towards the end of the Trump administration. There was a lot of bottom of the barrel to try and get people who could quickly get on the get on the bench. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Sixth Amendment ones, actually, weirdly, while it might be the most significant in substance, it's also the one that worries me the least just because there's no Sixth Amendment issue in the Trump case. <laughs> no, no, just because. That that's a contestable issue. Like that that happens from time to time. There's case law on like when it is and isn't acceptable to close a courtroom, and it's a mistake that a judge could make or or not make. It may not be a mistake, uh, depending on the standards that apply in the context. Well, she didn't even let like the defendant's family in the courtroom, which I think is you know 
people are saying, you know, she at least could have made some overtures and in fact seemed to operate as if she was unaware that the Sixth Amendment, you know, provides a right has for public trial. Extent. Yeah, it, it's possible mm. that she just has no clue what the case law surrounding this are, but it is. But the issue is that that is a contest of an issue that is, you know, mm-hmm. colorable arguments could be had on all sides. The other two, while they seem way more technical, uh, I, I mean, I think my assumption is we figured out who was guilty and who wasn't, whether or not it was on the form. And I mm-hmm. figure everybody knew they were supposed to tell the truth, even if they weren't sworn in. But even though those substantively don't seem as big a deal, they speak to a laziness uh, yes. Yes. that is a little more disconcerting and possibly more disconcerting than anything else. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is somebody who is new on the job, knows they're new on the job. And like you almost expect something like that to happen more for somebody who's been doing it so long that they kind of forget to follow procedure. When you're new, if you as a new person are ignoring basics like this mm-hmm. and showing kind of a lazy disinterest in learning the basics, that that's a way more damning thing in my mind. It also just, it strikes me um, also, particularly I think the jury instruction, the ju- the verdict form uh, issue, more also just that she has a very, she's very confident in her wrongness, right? Mm. Because this was a contested issue. The defense counsel had asked for, you know, the question of guilt to be put on the, the jury form. And she was like, I'm happy with the jury instructions, the jury verdict form as I've written it. And, why not? I mean, that that seems to be a lot of sort of the legal academic response to which why what is the downside to asking that additional question? The you know, the risk is that this is overturned, albeit potentially on just on a technicality, but it's potentially overturned by appellate courts because you never asked the jury that had been impaneled whether or not this person was guilty. You yeah. put it on the question on the form. It's not like if they, you know, in the they it was a guilty verdict, you know, and whether yeah. it, it wasn't like they would have been somehow confused if it's like, is this person guilty as well as the sort of predicate elements of the crime that wouldn't have increased the difficulty at all. It just, it, it was like, she's so confident in the way that she's done it, that she refuses to sort of dot the I's and cross the T's. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it, it's really weird with jury question, uh, jury forms like that, because you're, you're getting them from, you know, from all the sides, mm-hmm. you're getting proposed ones. And, you know, if you're a judge, I mean, most of these judges just take whatever the prosecution says. But <laughs> if you're being a conscientious judge, you're blending the two and un- taking stuff here and there. It seems as though she just kind of said, I-, I have my own, uh, which is bold, as you put it, confident for somebody who doesn't have any clue what they're doing. Yeah, and who got, he got the raw end, not the raw end, but uh, got, got, got told the business by the 11th Circuit. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, you would, you'd think that she might be a little bit more circumspect in, in realizing what she doesn't know at this point, especially, you know, I mean, that particular case, I guess no one, it's not a ton of public publicity about until she became right. the story. She right. is the story. Everything now becomes reviewable and everything becomes in, of interest now. Yeah. And my thing is, yeah. I think this is uh, really a, a good hats off moment to Trump because this is at least the second time that he's had a high profile judge that didn't know their amendments. I think of this with her not being familiar with the sixth and Amy Cody Barrett not knowing all the parts of the first. All the first. Oh, yeah. yeah. Yeah, I mean, also he put multiple people on the bench who the ABA ruled were not qualified. Mm-hmm. Uh, the a- and to be fair, the ABA's qualification provisions are 
as close to a rubber stamp as you can get. I mean, uh, the bar is yeah. on the floor here, and half mm. of these people and they are brought not shovels. Half, it, yeah, yeah. yeah. Like, yes. uh, like, I mean, uh, not to not to diss the ABA, and people point out the judges like Canada were qualified, and it's like, yeah, but. The problem is the ABA for so many years operated on this qualified, well-qualified, not qualified Mm -hmm. trio. And well-qualified meant you were actually like good at this job. But qualified was very much the bare minimum. Like you've Mm -hmm. you've seen a case, you've understand a case. I guess you can run this thing. But multiple people were ending up not qualified uh, in that last administration and got put on the bench anyway. So the ABA adopted the uh, the Harvard grading model. It, well, I mean, it was the Yale model. It was like not pass, and they got in anyway. But yeah, so and that that also sparked a political movement of senators saying that we should get rid of the ABA's role entirely because they got upset that the ABA kept pointing out these judges weren't qualified. Yeah. Yeah. Which, yeah. And I mean, Cannon did have, I think it was four criminal trials uh, experience as a in the DOJ's office, local Mm -hmm. office uh, before a point being appointed to the bench. But, you know, if you're not involved in all the aspects and haven't, you know, run the cases from, you know, different perspectives, that doesn't necessarily mean that, you know, all the ins and outs of all this. Yeah. I mean, fifth time's a charm. She doesn't get it now. (laughs) Calidus AI cleverly supports you by suggesting relevant law to address your complex issues. Put in simple questions or longer fact patterns, then Calidus asks you to confirm if points are salient before proceeding. Use Calidus to check if you found all the key concepts, cases, and statutes. Calidus turns that into a high-quality, customer-ready document. Handle complexity confidently with Legal's most advanced AI platform. Get $90 off your first two months. Use promo code Joe at CalidusAI.com. That's C-A-L-L-I-D-U-S-A-I.com. Hey, Guy, what's up? Just having some lunch, Conrad. Hey, Guy, do you see that billboard out there? Oh, you mean that guy out there in the gray suit? Yeah, the gray suit guy. Order up. There's uh, all those beautiful, rich, leather-bound books in the background. That is exactly the one. That's J.D. McGuffin at Law. He'll fight for you! I bet you he has got so many years of experience. Like decades and decades. And I bet, Guy, I bet he even went to a law school. Are you a lawyer? Do you suffer from dull marketing and a lack of positioning in a crowded legal marketplace? Sit down with Guy and Conrad for Lunch Hour Legal Marketing on the Legal Talk Network. Available wherever podcasts are found. So the next, uh, well, I guess we've talked a little, we've kind of made mention of Clarence Thomas and lunches and stuff. Uh, So Clarence Thomas, there's been more. Honk, honk. Yeah, there's more that's come out. uh, This slow burn of Clarence Thomas's finances continues. There's uh, multiple billionaires involved, multiple vacations. Yeah, I think he's gotten 38 paid for vacations by billionaires, which were not reported on any disclosure form. Right. But but the the one that seemed the most interesting is speaking of Hong Kong, mm-hmm. uh Clarence Thomas has very famously touted his everyman status by saying that you know, he doesn't take these luxury vacations. Turns out he does. He <laughs> instead every summer hops in the RV and trucks across the US, uh, seeing the seeing America from the road, like the open road. It's it's his like I mean, American dream. RVs are wildly expensive. The average American cannot afford one. 
Well, and uh, as it turns out, the average uh, Supreme Court just can't, justice can't afford an RV because the revelation is that Clarence Thomas did not actually buy this RV himself. Uh, he of course he didn't. Bought it. He had at least at some point a very, very wealthy friend of his who uh, is a healthcare executive financed this for him. The report claims uh, all that we really have is that they've managed to get a hold of the wealthy executive who said that the loan was, it was just a loan and the loan was satisfied. Uh, that is pointedly not saying it was paid off. Uh, it could mean that, but yeah. you know, it's Be like, forgiven. They, this is like the Aaron Rodgers. I am, I'm immunized rather than saying I got the vaccine kind of moment, right? We all know how that one turned yeah. out. This is saying it was satisfied leaves open very much the possibility that down that a year later he said, hey, you know what? Don't worry about it. Uh, and then functionally bought an RV for Clarence Thomas. So regardless of whether it was paid off or not, none of this was disclosed. Uh, this is That's something that was only discovered by people running title searches on the house, on, on the mobile home. And uh, there we are. I think I'd be more surprised if we went two weeks in a row without an update to the Clarence Thomas ethics scandal. And, it, I, and I kind of am of two minds of it. One, are people just getting so kind of immunized to the notion of the ethics problems on the court that it no longer matters? Or is this sort of the slow, you know, snowball running down the hill as it picks up more and more steam? And are we actually going to get some some sort of impact, whether it's ethics, you know, ethics provisions with teeth? Is it, you know, obviously, I, Democrats are calling for Thomas's resignation, not that that will happen, because it's yeah, not going to happen. <laughs> yeah, that's not how corrupt people act. Yeah, cor corruption usually doesn't self-police. Yeah. <laughs> this is a, a, a weird sentence to say, but I'm just very thankful that Clarence Thomas is a Republican judge. I just imagine if, if, a, if, a, if, a, if, a, if a black Democrat judge got caught doing an eighth of this, that'd be the <laughs> yeah, end. That would right. yeah. be yeah. the end. Yeah. Like, I mean, they... They they would have banned the Supreme Court. Not they just would have it. banned like, Pepsi. <laughs> <laughs> they would have banned soft drinks off of Anita Hill straight up if he like. Mm -mm. Yeah, I, I, and I think that we have to get a little more time and to to discover whether you know it kind of goes which way it goes. But it could it could it could get worse. The mm -hmm. result of this could be that ethics on the court get worse because if none of this is actionable, what right. is there to stop any justice in the future from doing anything? Yeah. Right. Yeah, I mean, it's pretty clear Alito's been involved in shady stuff already. Mm -hmm. uh, he's admitted to it in his insane rambling uh, op-ed. Uh, with that yeah. said, uh, you've got to think that he's more emboldened now than ever to Absolutely. keep doing it. Uh, yeah, it's not a great times, but yeah, so the RV, it turns out it wasn't the Horatio Alger success story that Thomas <laughs> kind of plays it up to be. Yeah, and that organization actually is where he met a number of the billionaire buddies that are buying him all sorts of uh, trips. Yeah, it's almost like it's almost like that society doesn't uh, it, its name doesn't really <laughs> reflect the kind of absurdist. I think that's fair. Know, Horatio Alger spirit. Well, uh, so anything more on the on on Clarence's? I mean, I don't know. That, that's we'll be back in a week with more stuff. Yeah, <laughs> if, right. we, if we think of something, we can definitely bring it up in the future. Uh, but what else is there to say? Yeah, I just, what gets me about it all is how 
I just don't understand why the disclosure was such a high bar for this guy. Like, I took a loan from a guy I'm willing to call a personal friend is, you know, pretty easy one to disclose. The, you know, it's a, the cover-up's worse than the crime moment. I, I don't know as though that's true here because the crime looks pretty bad. <laughs> but the cover-up on some of these, it, that, that's what gets me about this is because this one could have been defended pretty easily because this isn't a billionaire who's likely to have a bunch of business before the court. This is somebody whose relationship with him predates him joining the bench. This is something he could have said, and it's characterized as a loan. Mm -hmm. He could have pretty easily said, I took a loan from my buddy and shown that he paid it off and nobody would have cared. Yeah, I think that for a long time, the court operated in relative anonymity, mm. right? I think that most justices for the majority of our lives, most justices would not be recognized except for legal nerds, you know, and I don't think the average American would have recognized a lot of them. And I think that they kind of, well, know who's going to be, who's going to find out. They only will know if I tell them. And there were stories when Stephen Breyer or, and Ruth Bader Ginsburg had disclosed various trips that they had taken that were paid for by, uh, I think um, RBG took a, trip to Israel and was paid for by some group there and she disclosed it and there was a bunch of articles written at the time and uproar about, you know, she's taking this trip, blah, 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 blah. And that probably seemed worse than just pretending like it didn't happen. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Oh, well. I assume Clarence Thomas is on the road right now in that podcast. You're listening to podcasts in his RV, so if he's listening. Hong Kong. Yeah. All right. So finally, it is an annual tradition around these parts. Alan Dershowitz wants you to know that no one likes him on Martha's Vineyard. <laughs> so sad. Yeah. So sad. Where is my... Cr- Yet again, uh, this, is a, this is a trend. He's been doing this uh, now basically every summer. He goes on some willing network, whether it's Fox or Newsmax in this instance, to share that no one likes him on Martha's Vineyard. Uh, it's Don't been- go back then. Yeah. I mean, yeah, it, it, there, there's a simple solution to this. You don't, you don't have to go to Martha's Vineyard. It's not actually required. Yeah. I don't know if that Harvard Law professor is aware that mo- mm. the majority of people don't go to Martha's Vineyard. Well, so at first it was that uh, because he, he blames being involved in the first Trump impeachment uh, for this, seemingly glossing over the whole thinking Je- Jeffrey Epstein didn't deserve to mm. have the plea deal he had and all the sweetheart one, or that the stuff that he's been doing with the my pillow guy. So whatever, whatever it is, uh, he first blamed that for why he wasn't going to the good parties on Martha's Vineyard anymore. Uh, the next year he complained that the library did not invite him to give a speech. People not don't sure. like what you stand for, dude. Well, it's also that why why would the library be obligated to give you a platform? Like of they've done not. it in the past, they chose not to this time. Who cares? Uh, that now his latest complaint is the the local book fair did not have any of his books. Are you kidding me? No, that is actually the complaint this time. The local Martha's Vineyard book fair does not have any books, even though Dershowitz says he's written more books than any of these people, probably. Uh, He has no real basis for that. He just says that. Because of capitalism, they don't sell well in Martha's Vineyard. Yeah. Uh, it, It is very difficult to sell somebody on the idea of a legal analysis book from somebody who just got sanctioned to the Stone Ages by a court in Arizona. So maybe... Maybe there's a reason other than uh, they just don't like you that this is happening. But 
my takeaway on it was more I put aside the the hubris at all of the the typical Dershowitz nonsense. It just was the it speaks in a more fundamental and serious way to what I think is a pernicious problem. And that is these people who think that what free speech means is everyone's obligated to indulge your opinion. Mm -hmm. It is not, you know, no one is putting him in jail or persecuting him for his opinions, but they also don't invite him to their personal parties anymore. And that's people don't have to like you. The first amendment does not guarantee that you have friends. Yeah. And and this is the thing. And I, and I think it speaks, this is his take here, but it's, it's happening elsewhere. I think it is at the, it is at the root of a lot of these quote unquote free speech arguments we've been having on law school campuses Mm -hmm. where the complaint seems to be protesters. I mean, at first they started saying like they were shouting down folks, which would be, you know, the sort of thing that you you can have regulations against. But then when it starts coming out that the complaint is they had a protest outside the building and all. Now, at that point, you start running into this is not these kind of free speech, quote unquote, free speech complaints are we think you should have to sit quietly and listen to us. Mm -hmm. Uh, And that is not how the amendment works. Uh, And it is really dangerous in the long term for a society to think that everyone's obligated to indulge everyone's opinion because indulging everyone's opinion by definition means stifling the opposite opinion. And at a certain point, that becomes the actual violation of free speech. So no, all you get to do is have your opinion. You don't get to be liked for it. You don't get to be indulged with it. You don't get a platform automatically given to you. That's just not how any of this works. That's not how this works at all. The most annoying thing is there's uh, there's this school of them, uh, mostly not people like Dershowitz, who I assume would know better than this. Uh, there's a school of- Lol armchair lawyers who on social medias who always point out well, actually giving people platforms is part of the First Amendment. And they cite this one case for it, which is worth worth talking about because it says like it has language in it like a freedom to speak also implies a, a freedom to be listened to. Uh, but the but the issue in that case was about whether or not the federal government could deny visas to academics from Europe who had said socialist things. Mm. Uh, and the argument was, no, you can't do that. They, and they said, and the government's take was, oh, well, they, they can say whatever they want, but we don't have an obligation to give them a platform here. And in that instance, they said, well, yes, you do. That, that wasn't to say they had, the federal government is, you know, has an obligation to order schools to invite those academics. It was just, you can't, turn away their visas. But this line gets cropped out of context in all of these social media fights that I keep having. It's worth discussing, like yeah. a little yeah. con law lesson for people. Yeah, you don't have to listen. Yeah. yeah. Personal advice, use their block button. I wouldn't entertain that. I mean, I, I, I tend not to block them, people. Because that's just a dumb conversation to be locked in. I don't block people. I actually follow a bunch of like radical right wing accounts, even largely because I like to see what they're all saying. Uh, I feel like I, as awful as it is sometimes, I feel like I need to know what the the fringe Nazis are saying just so that I'm prepared for it. You know, just read Alito's uh, Wall Street Journal articles. Well, yeah, that's true. 
Well, thanks everybody for listening. You should subscribe to the show so you get new episodes when they come out. You should leave reviews, write something. It all helps. Stars, it's great. You should be listening to the Jabot, Catherine's other show. I'm a guest on the Legal Tech Week Journalist Roundtable. You listen to all the other shows that we aren't on on the Legal Talk Network. You should be reading above the law so that you read these and other stories before they find their way onto this show. Uh, follow us on the various social medias uh, at the X's. I guess. Uh, oh, stop. That's I'm awful. at Joseph Trees. She's Catherine One. Chris is at Rights for Rent. Uh, above the law is at ATL blog. At Blue Sky, I'm at Joe Patrice. Catherine is also Catherine One. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I just got a chance to be less formal, so I got to be just Joe Patrice as opposed to Joseph. Yeah. You can find me on Blue Sky at Joseph Patrice. <laughs> right, right, right. <laughs> Yeah. Uh, are you on that yet, Chris? No, I don't, I don't know if I have an invite. All right. Okay. I'll work on that for you. All right. Uh, and with that, we're, uh, we're good. All right. Bye. If you're a lawyer running a solo or small firm and you're looking for other lawyers to talk through issues you're currently facing in your practice, join the Unbillable Hours Community Roundtable, a free virtual event on the third Thursday of every month. Lawyers from all over the country come together and meet with me, lawyer and law firm management consultant Christopher T. Anderson, to discuss best practices on topics such as marketing, client acquisition, hiring and firing, and time management. The conversation is free to join, but requires a simple reservation. The link to RSVP can be found on the Unbillable Hour page at LegalTalkNetwork.com. We'll see you there.